Exodus 34. If you would, let's turn to chapter 33. And uh, we left off, uh, we read the whole chapter, we went through the whole chapter, but proper context, especially if you weren't here last week, is there found in chapter 33. We'll read verse 18 through 23. It says, and he said, this is Moses, he's speaking to God, and he says, please show me your glory. And then he said, I will make all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will, make, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you, on, put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here we find Moses. He's already taken his tent. He's taken his home, in a sense, and he's put it outside the camp so that he can have a place in quiet, away from distraction, away from the people where he can meet with the Lord. He also tells the whole nation of Israel, hey, if any of you want to meet with God, you can come out to the tent, and that's where we will meet with the Lord. It seems that it's only him and Joshua. They're the only two willing to go outside the camp and really hear from God, speak to God, and worship God. And as God reveals himself to him, as God is kind to Moses, Moses still has a hunger to learn more of God. Moses just has this desire for God's presence, even though he finds more and more and more of God's presence. And that's just something that happens within our lives with people or things or hobbies that we love. Again, if you're here, you're married, you're engaged, you're dating, right? Hopefully you don't just stop at, hey, when is your birthday and what's your favorite color? Okay, I got to know everything I need to know about you. Will you marry me, right? Hopefully there's a progress that happens there, a progression that you're getting deeper and deeper, learning more about them. And as you get married, there's different seasons of life, and you get to learn even more and more and more about this person. And if you love them, you enjoy every moment. And you look forward to getting to know them in a deeper and deeper way. And the same is true here for Moses. We also see that Moses, he's interceding. He's the mediator between the nation of Israel and God, and God and to the nation of Israel. God, he said, hey, we're going to just wipe out these people. They're sinful. They're terrible. And Moses is the one interceding, asking God to remember his grace and mercy, remembering that all of this has to be done for his glory. So there in chapter 34, verse 1, Moses is still there in the tent. He's still speaking to God. God has agreed to show him his glory. He's going to protect him. He's going to cover him with his hand and pass by him. But there in verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me here on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. 
And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. So again, the Lord, he agrees to this. He says, I'm going to show you my glory. But first, let's repair what was broken. Right? If you remember in Exodus 32, verse 19, Moses, he's coming down from meeting with God. He hears noise. Joshua thinks it's a battle going on. Moses goes, nope, that's the sound of worship. That's the sound of people singing. And in Exodus 32, verse 19, it says, So it was as soon as he came near the camp, then he seized the golden calf. He seized the nation of Israel dancing around it. It says, so Moses' anger became hot. I don't know if you've ever seen that look in your parents' eyes, your dad's eyes, your mom's eyes, right? None of the ladies here, right? Husbands, you see that look in your wife's eyes, right? But Moses' anger becomes hot, and now he casts the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Again, that joke, Moses only meant to break all Ten Commandments at once. But again, Moses was angry, and rightly so. The nation of Israel, within the last 40 days, they heard the little voice of God tell them what the Ten Commandments were. And just within 40 days of Moses being gone, they're breaking three out of the Ten Commandments all at once. So Moses comes down, and in a sense, as the nation of Israel had broken their covenant with God, Moses breaks these Ten Commandments. Again, revealing to them that God, he made a covenant. He said, this is how you need to live. And they broke that covenant. The Ten Commandments are broken. And now the Lord, willing to restore, willing to renew, he starts it all off with Moses. You got to fix what you broke, right? Says, Moses, you broke it. You got to fix it. You make these stones, bring them up. I'll write on them once again, the Ten Commandments. And again, the picture of Moses being the go-between for Israel. The whole nation of Israel didn't have to make their own set of Ten Commandments. They didn't have to all participate and help. Moses was the one that had to remake them and bring them up. And we're so blessed because now Jesus is our go-in-between. Jesus is our mediator. Moses, as great and amazing as he was and as he is, he was a sinner. And there were times where his anger would get the best of him like we just read. There would be times where he would misrepresent the Lord to the people, calling them names that God was not trying to call them, telling them things that God didn't want to tell them. But now we're blessed because we have a perfect mediator between God and man. You could just write down 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. It tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Later on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, again, it repeats to us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And again, Jesus, he's better than anything in the Old Testament. Jesus is better than everything that life has to offer. Don't know if there's anyone here that loves the Old Covenant or is trying to cling to that. Lots of scriptures show us that Jesus is better than all of it. Again, Moses, he desired to see more and more and more of God's glory. And here in verse 5, we begin to see the interaction when God is revealing his glory to Moses. Verse 5, it reads, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Here God is going to begin to reveal his glory to Moses. He's going to begin to show him who he really is and what his character is like. Moses has been obedient. He's done all that God has asked of him. And now God's willing to reveal himself in a deeper way. Notice that he starts off with the cloud descending and standing there before Moses. This is, if you're mature within Christianity or you know the lingo, this is the Shekinah glory of God. And the Shekinah glory of God, it appears a couple times in Scripture. We know that this same cloud, it led Israel day by day throughout the wilderness. We know this same cloud, it descended upon Mount Sinai when the nation of Israel was at the foot of the mountain. This is the same cloud that would stand at the tent of Moses meeting with him outside the camp. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, this is the same Shekinah glory, same cloud, that fills Solomon's temple to the point where the priest couldn't even get inside the temple. How much of God's glory had filled the temple? In Luke 1 verse 35, it's the same glory that overshadowed Mary as the angel speaks to her of Jesus and as the Holy Spirit conceives Jesus within her womb. It's present there at the Mount of Transfiguration when the three disciples see Jesus for all he truly is. Just a small glimpse of him in Luke 9 verse 34 and 35 and it tells us the shining, the radiance that was there. The three disciples fall on their faces. And finally, we know that this same glory will be present at the return of Jesus Christ. It tells us that he'll be coming on the clouds in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. And again, as amazing as this moment was, it's very interesting to me that God didn't want to leave things just on the emotional level for Moses. It wasn't just about the goosebumps, right? And have you ever met someone, oh, I know God's speaking to me. Look, feel my arm, feel my arm, feel my arm, right? Someone say, look, look at the back of my neck. The hairs are standing up. God is here, right? I don't know if you have anyone like that. And the Lord, he didn't want this moment with Moses to only be about emotions. God is here and he's proclaiming who he is to Moses. He's announcing, he's declaring the name of the Lord to Moses. And how does the Lord do that to us today? It's through his word. This is how he declares himself to us today, is by going through his word. So we got to be careful that it's not just about the goosebumps and the hairs and the feelings and the emotions. We have to have it attached through and to the word of God. The Lord starts off saying, the Lord, the Lord God. God starts off with his name, his name being Yahweh or Jehovah. And to us, when we just Find someone's name or oftentimes when we give a baby a name today, it doesn't have as much weight as it used to have in this culture, right? Maybe you were named after your parents' favorite musician or favorite telenovela star, right? I know some people, they were named after the U.S. Army or U.S. Navy, right? Some of us know people like that. My sister in college, she had a friend whose name was Irlanda because the dad looked at the map and thought it was a pretty name. 
right? So we name our kids for different reasons. Some good, some not so good, right? Maybe some of you, you changed your name, right? You don't tell anyone what your parents called you. But here, in this culture, there was a great weight whenever a parent would name their child. Great weight to what someone's name was. Oftentimes, parents would wait a few days before they would name the child, waiting to see, Lord, reveal to me the character of this young man or this young woman so that I can give them the right name. So as God is giving his name to Moses, he's saying, this is who I am. This is my character. This is my essence. And it's the same name that he would give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, Jehovah. God, he's not revealing anything new. He's not showing anything new. He's showing the same constant truth of who he is. That he is the eternal God. Never changing, always existing. That word Yahweh, it literally means the existing one. No one created him. No one made him. Some of us say he's been around since the dinosaurs roamed the earth. He's been around since the dinosaurs roamed the earth. He's been around since the world was created. He was around since before the earth had any shape, form, when there was just darkness and that alone. He is outside of time. He has created all things and by him all things exist. He's never changing. He's always constant. And that's how he starts off revealing who he is to Moses. Family, do you want to see more of God's glory in your life? Do you desire to learn more about him? Charles Spurgeon, he says that it has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is to study man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Family, how much time have you spent this week studying who God is? How much time have you given to that? How much weight have you put towards God? I want to know you more. Again, if we're honest, mankind loves studying things. Loves pursuing things. Even if you don't like school, everyone here studies something. There's something on YouTube that you're searching like crazy. You're trying to learn about it, right? What is Bitcoin, right? What does this even mean, right? And you're there searching. What in the world? right? Maybe it's how to cook something, right? During the pandemic, everybody's searching how to make banana bread or this type of bread, right? Or all these different things. And we get absorbed in the pursuit of different studies, Some people make fun of me. They say in the kitchen I'm like a scientist because I want to learn how to make something with the same process so that it can come out great every time. But it takes time to study it. And you need the right tools, the right measurements, grams, scales, all this stuff. But again, that's study. That's a pursuit to make great coffee, right? Or make great steak or whatever the thing is that you like. Cars, hobbies, animals, whatever it may be. My kids, they're into the pursuit of animals, right? And learning every fact they can learn about them. How much time do we invest in studying the Lord? Right? How much does learning more about Him, learning about His character just absorb us? That that's what we're seeking out. Again, family, may we be seeking out our God, our Father, May we be searching all of his incredible attributes because we will be spending the rest of eternity being blown away at who he is. Again, some people, they say they want to go to heaven, but I don't know if they really want to go to heaven, right? 
Heaven is surrounded with God's people and it's surrounded with God. So if you don't like God's people and you don't really like God, I don't know if you want to go to heaven or not. But may we be studying him. May we be in awe and wonder of who he is. The first characteristics that he gives of himself is merciful and gracious. You can write down Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 17. It says, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. It's so interesting to me. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I don't know if you've ever said it. That the God of the Old Testament is sort of like the God of wrath, right? God was sort of in a hangry mood and in the New Testament he had a good meal to eat and he's just nice in the rest of the New Testament, right? But here we see that God is merciful and gracious within the second book of the Bible. If we're honest, he was merciful and gracious in the first book of the Bible. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some of us may know Jonah, right? That famous story, the prophet that gets swallowed by a whale or by a fish. He's angry with God and he runs from following his mission because he says, God, if I give them the good news, I know that you want to forgive them. And I don't want to see them forgiven. In Jonah chapter 4 verse 2, he says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Family, I don't know if you know this of the Lord yet, how merciful he's been on your life, how gracious he's been. Oftentimes we define mercy as not getting what we deserve. This kind and gentle treatment of someone who is a wrongdoer, that we have no right to this kind and gentle treatment, yet someone gives it to us and we say, oh, thank you for that mercy, right? You ran the stop sign, ran the red light, police lights come on, you just checks out your insurance, your license, and he says, hey, be careful, this is a warning, and you say, oh, thank you for that mercy. However, the biblical idea of mercy is that he is full of compassion, that our God is full of compassion. And here in the Hebrew, it's literally that he is tenderly pitiful. That God is tenderly pitiful. Our pride, our machismo doesn't like that too much, right? We put on our Mr. T mohawk and we say, I pity the fool, right? No, God can't be pitiful. What are you talking about, right? What it's truly saying is that he is full of a compassion that is moved by pity. Not that he is pitiful, but that he is delicate, loving, and affectionate. As he sympathizes with our sorrows, our suffering, and our distress. Family, the pitiful person in this relationship with God is us. It's you. It's me. But oftentimes our pride says, no, I'm not pitiful. I'm amazing. I'm incredible, right? My mom tells me all the time, I am amazing, right? It takes humility to be able to realize how gracious our God is to us. Do you realize that, how low we really are? How quick life is, right? You're born, then you're in high school, then all of a sudden you're in your 40s, and then you're saying, what in the world happened? All my friends are dying. What's going on here, right? <laughs> life is pitiful. It's quick. It's a vapor. We can't really protect ourselves. We do our best and we still fail. The other person still takes the red light, and there's nothing you could do about it, right? We do our best, have our mask, have this, have that. You still get COVID, right? We do our best and you still get it. it. We're pitiful. And yet God is gracious and kind towards us. 
right? I don't know if you've ever been there. There's those memes, they make me laugh so much, right? You're there watching Netflix till 2, 3, 4 in the morning. You finally turn off the TV and all of a sudden you're met with your reflection in the TV, right? Is that what I really look like, right? Have I really just given six hours to this box and I have nothing but remorse to show for it that I got to go to work tomorrow, right? Or pitiful. And yet God looks at us and he's moved with compassion. The weaker that we are, he loves us even more. That's why it tells us that he loves the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. The more broken, the more contrite we are, the more willing he's wanting to show himself strong on our behalf. But the more we puff ourselves up, the more we say, God, I don't need your help, the more he sets himself up in war against us. We can turn to Psalm 78, verse 38 and 39. It's a great psalm when you go home if you want to read just a a quick synopsis of the history of Israel and the history of God's mercy on Israel. Great psalm. But there in Psalm 78, verse 38 and 39, it says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again, how gracious God was, compassionate, forgiving their iniquity, not destroying them when they should have been destroyed. Again, he starts off saying, I am this Yahweh, this Jehovah, the existing one. I am a God. I am mercy. Then he says grace. This word grace comes the idea to bend or stoop down in kindness and favor to an inferior. Again, all of this amazing and beautiful relationship that we can have with Jesus is based on his unmerited love. This incredible undeserved free gift is the love of God that no one can ever deserve. And it's all his grace. It's all his kindness. It's all his mercy. He stoops down to our being inferior, and he loves us even more. Not all of you, but I know some of you. You see this little puppy, and the thing is hideous, and you're just saying, oh, look how cute it is, right? It's not cute, right? But it's so inferior. It's so little. It's so small. You can't help but to love on it, right? Even with babies, babies are incredible. We love them so much, but they are inferior, right? They're weak. Those poor things, they can't even feed themselves. They can't clean themselves. They can't even burp by themselves, right? And yet that draws us, those of us that have compassion, some of us get annoyed with them, but those of us that have compassion, right? It draws you to want to love them even more, right? They throw up on you and you're giggling about it. They're pooping on you and you're joking about it, right? How weak they are, how inferior they are. And that's how God looks to us. He just loves us. He's just kind towards us. Psalm 32 verse 2 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Have you tasted of that? Are you blessed here? Do you say, Lord, you don't count my sin on me. Lord, you've forgiven me. You've seen my weakness and yet you made yourself strong on my behalf. Again, God's grace. You could just write down Hebrews 4 verse 16, right? We think of this all-powerful God and what does he name his throne? Is it the throne of wrath, the throne of judgment, the throne of power? No, he calls it the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
if we come to him in humility, he's looking to be gracious. He's looking to be merciful. He's saying, that's who I am. From heaven's perspective, grace refers to the giving nature of God. He's just saying, hey, this is who I am. I love to give to my kids. I love to love on them. From our perspective, grace refers to getting what we do not deserve. Because if we're honest, we deserve nothing from God. The only thing we deserve from Him is wrath and hell for all of eternity. But His grace, the nature of our God wanting to give to us, right? It's one thing to get pulled over by a police officer and be let off with a warning. It's another thing for the police officer to say, hey, just follow me. I'll help you get to work quicker, right? Turns on the lights and says, hey, follow me, right? That's just grace. I don't deserve this. And he's being kind towards me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we can turn there. And here's just the power of the grace of our God. Right? If we're here and we're believers and we're worried about certain things, we need to be reminded of what God has already given us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Again, another incredible chapter to read when you get home. But there he tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Again, if he's already given us his only begotten son, what is he going to hold back from you? He may hold back things that are sinful. He may hold back things that are going to take you even further away from God, things that aren't good for you right now. But he doesn't want to hold anything back. I was listening to a teaching recently, and it's so true. God, he describes himself as a perfect father. And a perfect dad does not say yes all the time. Any of you dads always say yes to your kids, right? No matter what they ask for. They want to buy this thing, that thing, the third, right? You just say yes. They're 12 years old. They ask you for the keys to the car. You say yes, right? Everything they say, no, that's not a true dad, That's a genie, right? If anybody knows, right, Aladdin Theology 101, right? The true slave in the relationship between the genie and the one holding the lamp, the genie's the one that's the slave. And oftentimes we get angry with God because he's not doing what we've demanded him. We say, God, I prayed for this, I asked for this, and you said no. How dare you? And what you are, the place you're putting yourself at, you're saying, God, I am God and you are my slave. And you've told me no, and now I'm mad at you. How dare you tell me no? Right? That's not who God is. He is a perfect father. And oftentimes a good dad has to give his kids vitamin N. Right? No, you can't eat ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, you can't do that. No, you can't skip school. No, you can't drop out of school. Right? That vitamin N. That's who God is. He's a perfect father, full of grace, full of mercy. But at times he's going to tell us no because that's not what's best for us. That's not what's going to give him the most glory. What's the next thing that God refers to himself as? Long-suffering. Right? Each of us, we have that friend, that family member that has a short fuse. Right? You tell them anything and they want to fight right away. Say something about their mom, they're already swinging, right? Punch first, ask questions later, right? We all have that friend. This is the opposite of that. It's telling us that God has a long fuse, that he's slow to anger, that he is patient with us. And come on, let's be honest. Would any of us be able to be patient with the nation of Israel? He's freed them from slavery after 400 years. He's sent them from Egypt with all the riches, all the glory of Egypt. And how do they respond? 
murmuring and complaining the whole way. The whole way. Claiming that slavery in Egypt was better than living in freedom with God and Moses, right? Saying the leeks and the onions were so amazing in Egypt. Who likes leeks and onions that much, right? Anyone, man, you got to go to this restaurant. The onions there are incredible, right? (laughs) This place, five stars on Yelp. Their onions are amazing, right? Nobody cares about that. But this was the heart of the nation of Israel. Prone to complain. Prone to murmur, right? They reach the Red Sea. They begin to complain. They reach the bitter waters of Mara, complain about Moses. The food runs low, they complain. God rains bread down from heaven, they're sick and tired of it, they complain. They're thirsty in the desert, they complain. Moses doesn't return from Mount Sinai exactly when they wanted, they complain. They start worshiping the golden calf. The nation of Israel failed and faltered over and over and over again, yet God's mercy was not exhausted. He was still willing to be merciful to them. And again, the nation of Israel is just a picture, family, of the person in the mirror. The picture that I get annoyed with so quickly at the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament is God saying, Zach, this is exactly who you are. One moment you're happy because I saved you from what you deserved. The next moment life is good and you have completely forgotten about me. But yeah, I'm willing to forgive you. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. It says, Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Again, God's mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness towards us, it's new every morning. It's reset. It's not like us that we get annoyed with people. We say, man, this person, they did this to me and that to me. And last week and the week before and last Thanksgiving and last Christmas. No, it's new every morning towards us. He's so patient with us and our stubbornness. The next thing it says that he's abounding in goodness and in truth. Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he says, not merely adequate It's not that he's adequate in goodness or adequate in truth, but he is abounding in this great God of glory. He has barns and silos full of love and faithfulness. He is stacking it in the streets looking for a distribution system. Family, do you want the goodness of God in your life? Do you actually want it? I mean, it's easy. You just got to be obedient to his word. But do you want it? It reminded me we had a police, uh, man, I always forget the word. I call it a drive through drive and all these different things. But people would come, police would be here, we'd give them groceries, right? We had a lot of people, and towards the end of the day, we realized we had an insane amount of bananas left. Like just a crazy amount of bananas left. So at the end of the day, every car that would come, I don't know if you've ever been to Aldi, but every car that would come, they get like a whole box of bananas, right? Like a lifetime supply of bananas, right, each box. And it was all up to the person if they actually wanted it or not. If the person was willing, hey, they get like 10 boxes of bananas if they were willing, right? But it was all there. It was all there for the taking, an abundance of bananas, right? And our God has an abundance of his goodness. Just more often than not, we say, nah, God, I'm good. I don't want those bananas in my car. What am I going to do with those bananas, right? We say, Lord, your goodness, I'd rather have this sin right here, Lord. Your goodness, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be in the Word. Lord, your goodness, Lord, I'm tired, I'm lazy, I deserve this day off this morning, right? But His goodness is in an abundance, it's willing for each and every one of us, but we have to come to Him. You can write down James chapter 1, verse 17. It tells us every 
good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Everything that is good comes from God. There is nothing in this world that can be good if it's not from the Lord. Right? Sometimes you have to be careful. I've been there. I've been in sin, right? Oh, God, this is the one. She's so good. And she's like a complete pagan, right? No, she can't be good. She has nothing to do with the Lord, right? Again, it can only be from God. Let's turn to Psalm 73. Here we get an incredible psalm from Asaph. He's down. Some would even say he's depressed. He's bothered. He's looking at the world around him. Looks like the bad guy's always winning. Good guys never make it. Looks like God's asleep. God's lost it. God has forgotten about them. So important for us. Psalm 73, verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But look in verse 17. Look how he's able to be reminded how good our God really is. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, And then I understood their end. Again, family, it's so important for us to go to church. If this isn't your home church, so important for us to go into the house of God so that we could be reminded. What does the end of the book say? Who makes it? Who doesn't make it? What's the good? What's the bad? What's the ugly? What's the truth? So important for us when we're discouraged, when we're losing our bearings, to be at church. To have that consistency within our lives. More than ever before, right? Things are just not consistent. But we need consistency in our lives. That's why it's so important to go to church and be consistent in that. Because we need to keep our bearings within the Lord. Again, he's abounding in goodness. And he's also abounding in truth. This should really settle our hearts. A couple scriptures here. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. It says, God who cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says, In which it was impossible for God to lie. Finally, Numbers 23, verse 19, it tells us, God is not a man that he should lie. Our God, he can't lie. And now the promises he's given to the nation of Israel, the promises that he's given to us, they can't be touched. They can't be broken. Those promises are eternal and unchanging just like he is. There's no force on this earth strong enough to break the promises that God has given us. Especially the ones found in his scripture. Now we do need to understand this properly because there are many promises in scripture and many promises given to us that have terms and conditions. Right? Even for King Saul, he was given promises, but they had terms and conditions. He broke those terms and conditions, and now the Lord says, hey, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. You've broken the terms and conditions. So we need to be careful in our lives that we haven't broken those conditions that God has given us a promise attached to it. Although, and even in Scripture, there are many times when His grace and His mercy is put on display once again, in God fulfilling his promises. Right? Some of us, we've tasted that. Lord, I've totally blown that. I don't deserve that. That's gone. That's thrown away. And God says, hey, I'm still willing to be merciful. I'm still willing to be gracious. You may have to go through the consequences of your decisions, but I'm still willing to be gracious. I'm still willing to be merciful. 
Then in verse 7, it tells us keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Again, God, he has more than enough mercy for each and every one of us. He is willing and desiring to forgive each and every one of us from our sin. He is seeking and longing to forgive us. But will we come to him? Will we come to him in our humility? Psalm 86 verse 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and in truth. And again, he uses three specific words there. God knows who we are, right? He says, not only am I willing to forgive sin, not only do I have mercy enough for thousands, but I'm willing to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Every type of sin. The sins we make that are purely mistakes. We're trying to seek and follow God and we speak when we shouldn't speak or we do something that, hey, that's totally not of the Lord, right? And God is willing to forgive us of those things. Transgression, when we know something is wrong and we do it anyways, God's still willing to forgive you of those things. And even iniquity, taking what God has told us and now we pervert it for our own use. God is willing to forgive. He has mercy for thousands. Again, there is nothing that we can do that God is not willing to forgive us from. Nothing. Now, he's not willing to forgive us and we live a double life. He's not willing for that. We'll see that in a moment. But he's more than willing to forgive each and every one of us for our sins. Right? Probably the greatest apostle there in the New Testament, Paul. The guy literally murdered Christians, chased after them, had wives and husbands separated from each other. We would call him a monster today. If we're honest, many of us wouldn't welcome him into our church or into our home. And yet the grace of God upon his life, the forgiveness of God on his life. But then, right, it continues, Exodus 34, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I don't know if you ever had to have that difficult conversation with someone, right? Hey, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. That's what the Lord is saying here. Hey, I am gracious, I am kind, I am patient, I am long-suffering. But if you are guilty, you're not going to be cleared of it. I'm going to follow it through. I'm going to see it through. Here, this was a saying within Hebrew customs. There's no such thing as generational curses, right? Many of us, we may be the first person saved within our family. Just because our parents lived in sin doesn't mean that we have to live in sin. We're going to reap the consequences of their lives, but that doesn't mean that we have to live exactly how they lived. But God, he's telling us, if my forgiveness is so great, if my patience is so deep, if my love, my kindness, my mercy is so deep and wide, and you turn in pride saying you don't want it, you better believe justice is coming. You better believe you will reap everything you have sown. Again, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He gives every single way out of it. He gives every single lifeboat and life raft and friend and helicopter and everything to draw us into the kingdom of God. But if we come to him in our pride, he's going to push us away. He says he's going to go to war with those who are prideful, right? We looked at that on Wednesday. You come to God in pride, he sets himself up in war and battle against the prideful. But if we're humble, 
If we come to him in a broken and contrite heart, if we say, Lord, I messed up, would you forgive me? And he will never despise that. This is amazing to me because this wasn't Moses' first time experiencing God. All the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verse Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14, God meets with Moses the first time. Moses says, how do I know that you're the one that sent me? When the people ask who sent me, what do I say? And God simply answers, I am who I am. Say that to them, right? Aren't we grateful that Moses wanted more of God's revelation? Aren't you thankful that didn't just stop there in the book of Exodus, right? Who is God? I am who I am. If I can be honest with you guys as a pastor, I get confused lots of times when I go to that scripture, right? Hey, God, who are you? I am who I am. Got it. Okay, I got it. Got it. I got it, right? Again, Moses, he still wanted more and more. We don't have time to go through that study. You could look it up right later. But the Lord wants to reveal more and more of himself to us. And if we're grateful for Exodus 34, shouldn't we be grateful that we can see God and we can have our own Exodus 34? That you don't just have to stop at the surface. Who's Jesus? He's that little baby on a haystack for Christmas. And he's that older guy on the cross during Easter. I'm good with that, right? No, hopefully you're here and you're saying, Lord, reveal more of yourself with me. Exodus 34 verse 8, what was Moses' response upon seeing and hearing and sensing who God is? He made haste and he bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Again, the true response in seeing how great and how good our God is is to fall at his feet and worship him. Again, family, so important for us to get here before worship starts. I know it's difficult. I struggle. Lord, I'm trying to study, trying to get this right, but I want to be in worship. I know it's tough, but it is so important to be in worship. It's like its own separate Bible study. The Lord prepares our hearts there. We're reminded of who he is and what he's done for us. And a danger for us is that if we're calloused in worship, Look at how Moses responds to truly knowing and being revealed to who God is. If you're calloused in worship, perhaps your heart is calloused towards the Lord and what he's done for you. Perhaps there's just too much pride there still remaining, saying, Lord, you really haven't done that much for me. Lord, I'm pretty great. You're just the cherry on top of my greatness, right? We got to be careful with that. Moses, right away, he's a great man. He parted the Red Sea by the power of God, had bread rained down from heaven, done so many things. And yet in knowing God in a deeper way, he bows his face flat on the earth and worships God. Then in verse 9, he says, If I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Moses still comes to God in an in a attitude of humility. He's still asking God, have you found grace with us? Lord, is it still okay? Lord, can you still come? Lord, I know. Look, he identifies himself with the nation of Israel. Lord, we are a stiff-necked people. Lord, would you pardon our iniquity and our sin? Again, the perpetual heart of humility in each step of Moses. And whenever pride is there in the heart of Moses is when danger and bad things happen. Again, the only way we can come to God is through his grace. Unmerited favor. Undeserving. Whether you've been a believer for one day or a hundred days or a hundred years. The only way we can come to God is through his unmerited favor. Verse 10, it says, And he said, Behold, I make a covenant 
Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. For all the people who are among you are, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hivite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Again, God is willing to renew this covenant with the nation of Israel, but he's not changing the terms of the agreement. It's the same exact terms as the first one. He doesn't say, hey, let's make this a little easier so you guys can make it. I see you guys can last 40 days without breaking it. No, he says it's the same exact terms. But look what he's willing to do. He says, I'm going to drive out Amorite, Canaanite, Hivite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. Don't make any covenants with these people. What are the nation of Israel going to do later on? They're going to make a covenant with one of them, right? And we do the same thing. I love Sandy Adams, right? He says, the Lord, he wants to drive out the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Bud Light, the Skin Tight, and the Friday Nights. He wants to drive all those things out of our lives. But for many of us as believers, we cry out saying, God, would you forgive me? I can't believe I fell again. He's willing to drive it out through his Holy Spirit. Each time we sin, it's because we're deciding to do so in our flesh. He's willing to drive all those things out, but yet we make covenants with those things. Lord, it's just one case. I'll keep it in my garage just in case. Lord, I'm going to keep the phone numbers of all my old friends just in case they want to call for ministry, right? Lord, just in case. Got to break those chains. Let, don't keep those things. Don't be making covenants with the things that bring you down. But verse 13 and 14, instead you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Again, a part of God's character, a part of true love has a good amount of jealousy within it. Are you telling me God has the green eye? He has the green eye of envy? No, this is what true love is. All right, we're blessed. We have a lot of baby dedications. We've had a lot of marriages in this season. Thank God I've never heard a marriage or a wedding ceremony, right? And I vow to give you 75% of me to you and 25% of me to any other woman that comes my way. I, I don't. I don't do that, right? That's what happened there at that moment. And yet that's how we want to treat the Lord. Lord, I'll give you 75%, Lord. Except for this girl, except for this guy, Lord, I'll give you all the rest. Except for this hobby, except for this sin, except for this freedom, Lord, I'll give you all the rest. God says, no, I am a jealous God. I don't want to share you. I'm willing to give you my all, but I desire, I want, I expect your all as well. Verse 15 and 16, look at the progression here. He says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and they make a sacrifice to their gods, then one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. The warning that God was telling Moses wasn't even for the adults at this time period. The warning was for the children of the adults. And the warning for us family is perhaps you are strong enough to walk in all the freedoms that you have in Christ. Maybe you are strong enough. You can totally handle it. But the warning here is that you may be able to handle it. 
But as you handle it, and now the repercussions of you getting to taste of this freedom in Christ, perhaps your sons and your daughters can't handle it. And they're going to be drug away to the foreign nations. And then will your freedom be worth it? Or were you able to be rejoicing in the freedom that God has given you to not have to do these things? To be able to have to have fun in other ways and other means. That's exactly what verse 15 and 16 are saying. Hey, you may be able to handle it, Israel. But when you're with them and with those evil people and then their daughters come around and start messing with your sons, they're going to fall. They're going to falter. Verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. God is going to begin to repeat a lot of the covenant that we've already seen earlier. Verse 18, the feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. God's reminding them, don't forget where you've come from. Remember how I have freed you. Verse 19 and 20, all that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Again, God is saying all of you need to work so that all of you can appear before me with something. And God is saying, I expect the best. God wants our best. Doesn't want our leftovers. Doesn't want our leftover time, our leftover giftings, our leftover years in life. God expects our best. Again, he gave us his absolute best. He sent us Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. He gave Moses and the people his best. He didn't give them the angel. He was willing to be the one to go before them and lead them. And in the same way, God expects our best for him. Verse 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks and the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. The Lord's telling them, hey, don't worry, trust in me. Even if it's time of harvesting or time of plowing, take that Sabbath day and trust in me. Even if it's the time to go out to visit Jerusalem or visit where the tabernacle is or visit where the temple is, don't get worried about your stuff or your house. Is God going to protect? Is God going to do this? He's saying, hey, if you follow me, if you're doing things for me, I will protect you. I'll see you through it. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. Leaven, a picture of sin. Don't be trying to offer God sacrifices while you're living a life of sin. Nor shall the sacrifice of the peace of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. And you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We looked at this again before. This was a um, pagan ritual to make a land more fertile. And this is what has destroyed the cheeseburger for the Jewish people. Verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days 
and forty nights, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Moses, he's up there with God forty days, forty nights, no food, no water, no drink. Then in verse 29, it tells us, Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain. I don't wonder if he's talking to himself. Don't get mad. Don't throw them. Don't get mad. Don't throw them, right? What are they going to be doing this time? That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. It radiated. And they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation, they returned to him. Moses talked with them, and afterward all the children of Israel came near. And he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Again, just this incredible picture, right? We don't know if the people are freaked out. Moses, turn that thing off. I'm trying to go to sleep, man. Turn that off. Cover that. Hey, Moses, come over here. I'm trying to read at night, right? Can you come over here, bro, right? What's going on here? First thing for us to draw from this is that Moses did not have to gloat about his relationship with God. He didn't have to gloat about it. He didn't have to tell everyone how amazing he was or how he had a master's in divinity or how long he went to church or how much he read. The people around him could see the work and the effect of his relationship with God on his face. That was just a fact. Charles Spurgeon, he says, the face of Moses shone because he had long looked upon the face of God. Forty days spending time with God and his face is radiating. Again, family, the more we spend time with God, the more we're going to look like him. And we should begin to possess those fruits of the Spirit within our life. That peace, that joy, that agape love that is going to radiate in the darkness of this world. You can write down Acts chapter 4 verse 13. It tells us now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And they perceived that they were uneducated. They were untrained men. They are just a bunch of fishermen from Galilee. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Can family, can people realize that you have been with Jesus? Can people see the difference in your life? The way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your kids, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your family members, your boss, your teacher. Can people see the difference within you? I think it's special. In Scripture, there's only two men that we see that their face is shining. It's Stephen, the martyr, and Moses. And these are two incredibly humble men. Again, how God, he resists the proud, but he gives his grace, he gives his unmerited favor, right? That God of goodness, that God of giving, he's going to give even more to those who are humble and meek. Charles Spurgeon, he says, we're always praying, Lord, make my face to shine. But Moses never had such a wish. And therefore, when it did shine, he didn't even know it. He had not laid his plans for such an honor, let us not set traps for personal reputation. 
or even a glance, a thought that way. Again, what was Moses' desire to be with God? Was to see his glory. He didn't care how it affected him. He didn't care how it made other people see him. All Moses desired was to be closer and nearer to the Lord. Moses didn't want to use God as a way to get what he wanted out of him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you could turn there real quick if you want. If not, no worries. Paul gives us the reason why Moses had to put on this veil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Again, the children of Israel, they could realize, Hey, Mo, you haven't been spending time with God recently, right? You're not glowing so much anymore. Some of the pastors, some of the overseers, we have the type of relationship that if somebody's a little bit angry in the morning, we can say, hey, man, did you read your Bible this morning? You seem a little bit testy, right? You seem a little bit angry here. You seem a little bit bothered. Have you, have you spent time with the face of God, right? And how people, they're going to see that within us, especially those closest to us, right? Because, Daddy, are you angry? I'm like, what? Change your face, right? Your, your spouse saying, honey, have you, have, when was the last time you went to church, right? Have you spent time with God? And all of this Paul uses as a picture that the old covenant is glorious, but it's fading away. That the true glory of God is found in this new covenant in Christ Jesus. And again, as great and as glorious as this meeting with God and Moses was and is, Yet the word tells us that our meeting with Jesus Christ is far more glorious than this meeting. That what we know of Jesus Christ, Moses wishes he would be able to know that as he was walking on this earth. That the men in the Old Testament, even the disciples, would wish to have what we have in knowing Christ. Again, Jesus is God. He says, I only do the will of my Father. He and I are one. So we have the greater picture Not just a cloud, not just a light bulb, not just a moment, but we have the full picture of who God is in Christ Jesus. Again, where did Moses have to go to in order to see God's glory? He had to be in the rock. The rock for us is Jesus Christ. He put on flesh. He hid the glory of God behind human skin, and he dwelt among us. Again, the ministry of the Spirit is far more glorious the Holy Spirit that's within us, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, We are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Finally, one last note, one last comment on this. Just as Moses began to look like the object of his worship, everyone will begin to look like the object of their worship. And the thing is, we were made to worship. We were made to worship God. We try to fulfill that with different things. But each and every one of us will begin to look like the object of our worship. Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8, it says, They're idols. They're gold and silver. They're the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Family, who do you look like? Who are you becoming? 
What is the object of your worship? If it's the things in this world, you're going to begin to look more anxious, more fearful, more angry, more bitter, more short-tempered. But if the object of your worship is Christ, you're going to be more loving, more kind, more gracious. More people are going to want to be around you, right? That's the trade-off there.